we're talking about mission, and it says, Jesus sent me on mission, so I will make disciples as I go. And I think we're all familiar with that, and um, always challenged by that to a certain degree, at least I hope. A couple of weeks ago, Josh Daggett talked about this very subject, but he came at it from the angle of vocational ministry. And he addressed the area that God could be putting his hand on some in this audience that they would be called a full-time ministry. And I don't discount that. I think God very easily could be working on the hearts of several individuals here in this room to serve in a capacity full-time. And may God raise up laborers. As Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Very important part, and I think a very uh, healthy church does have young men and women who are called into ministry full-time, and that is happening here. We want that to continue to happen here. My topic tonight actually goes in a different direction, and I would like to address those who are not going to be called necessarily into vocational ministry. So non-vocational ministry maybe be, would be the topic tonight. What I like about that topic is that touches every heart in this room. And uh, if you felt like maybe Joss's message wasn't directly to you as being called, this message should be just a little bit different from that aspect. You know, I would say, first of all, and I've shared with you numbers of times, the man who was so instrumental in my life was not in vocational ministry. He was a layman, and uh, God used him in such a powerful way in my life. And so as I was being saved, I was getting a picture of someone who was not in ministry, who indeed had a very powerful ministry. And so I would challenge your way of thinking. If you think, well, I really can't have a powerful ministry. I'm not called into the ministry. You're mistaken in that because God clearly wants to use us in different ways, but in, in ministry. And so I want you to think a little bit with me tonight as we go through. Now, we're going to do that in a number of ways. One, we are going to take a, um, we're going to take a look at a book that um, Brad used with the Uganda team before it went out. I used it on Saturday mornings with a couple of men's group called Life on Mission. And this book really is directed to the very theme that we're talking about here, to bring people in to understand what the mission is. So we're going to look at excerpts from this book, and then we're also going to look at two biblical examples of what we're talking about. Two of my favorite books in the New Testament are short books. Philemon is one of them, which is rich in so many areas. But Philemon was a layman. He received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Another one that is, again, one of my favorite books is 3 John, which is written to a man, Gaius, who also was a layman, but used richly by God. So we want to look at excerpts from this book, and then we want to look at those two biblical examples if we can. So we'll start with, and you have uh, um, these excerpts on a sheet. You can follow along or look at them as we go through. It says, this kind of movement, as we talk about life on mission, um, this kind of movement involves all of us 
every single follower of Christ fishing for men, every single disciple making disciples. That's by David Platt. And that's true. I think if you look biblically in Matthew chapter 28, you know, the Great Commission, that wasn't given just to the 12. That was given probably to a group of about 500. And when Jesus addressed those people, he was addressing people that were going to be laymen, so to speak, in ministry, as well as the disciples who were called. So he included all of them when he talked about making disciples. And so David Platt is right when he says that says this, again, another excerpt, no Christ follower is exempt from using the gifts God has given for the building of his kingdom. You know, as I thought through just that statement, my first response, why would anybody want to be exempt from this program? And yet, it's an attitude in the Christian church, oh, great commission, not again, make disciples, I wish they would forget that. I don't want to participate in that. There's just a few. No, that's not the idea of scripture at all. In fact, God, as he goes through, remember, he calls all believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ambassadors of Christ. That sounds positive to me. And it is a privilege. It's a great privilege. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, God, or Paul, writes and says that we, those involved in ministry, are co-laborers with God. That sounds like a privilege to me as well, doesn't it, to you? If God came alongside of you and said, would, would you like to work with me? How would you respond to that? Whoa, to me. I'm glad we're not exempt from this. This is a privilege to participate in the program that God is developing as he enlarges his kingdom. Here's another, just an excerpt as you go through, and it says, I heard, this is coming from the authors of the book, I heard teacher after teacher expound on how we cannot just look at mission as something to add to our schedules, but something to intersect with our current daily rhythms. Think about that for a while. What is it trying to say? Disciple making is supposed to be a part, a natural part of our life. It's not just something that you add in to your life. Maybe an illustration would be best for us as we come to the new year. Oftentimes, diets become very important to people, and we jump on these crash diets. Oh, in three months I can lose 20 pounds. That's what I need. And people do that. And then what happens after the three months are over? Well, then they just gain everything back. My wife has taught me well in this area. If you're going to do a diet that's worthwhile, it has to be a life-changing diet. Otherwise, it really never has the impact that you want it to have. You know, disciple-making is the very same thing. I know there's people, they go on a mission trip. Oh, I did it. I went on a mission trip. I'm done. Or they get fired up for two weeks to three months. <laughs> I did my part. That's like going on a crash diet. It does not do what you want it to do. Disciple-making should be a part of our lives. It should be a valuable part of our lives. And so don't look at it like a crash diet. Just say, God, I need this to be a part of my fiber, a part of my makeup. 
because that's really what this is, is all about. Here's a statement in the book as well, very thought-provoking. Of America's, of America's 316 million people, evangelicals account for about 22 to 28 million. That means a staggering 93% or so are non-evangelicals. But then notice this. Americans' evangelical population loses 2.6 million per decade. According to this book, we're losing ground And you know, if you think about it for a while, there are so many churches that have the problem of gray heads, don't they? All across our country, it's taking place. The aging population, because why? The gospel isn't being shared oftentimes by the congregation. And so churches don't add people on. And so churches begin to die. Now, I'm not saying that's happening. There are great churches. And I am so happy that God is working in this church. But don't be deceived. If we're not active doing this, our church will die along with all the other churches that are dying. This has to be something on the forefront. And that's what they're trying to wake people up to. We need to be busy about doing God's business in making disciples. Life on mission. Again, excerpts that I thought are valuable is a calling of abandonment. It is. And it comes back to the really the age-old question, what are you living for? I mean, we're living for something that lasts, and that's people, and that's making disciples. Here's another excerpt that I enjoyed. The greatest gift we can give the world around us is our closeness with God. That's really what discipleship is all about. It's not a mechanical presentation of trying to persuade people to this plan. It's really your closeness with God that you're trying to share with other people. And so that needs to be there. Our closeness with God has to be there and then to such a degree is that we want to share that with others. So your daily quiet time and closeness with God should automatically give you a great desire to want to share the gospel and your life with God with others. Last one. You teach people what you know but you reproduce who you are. Jesus asked us to be disciple makers. So let me just ask you, if your life was reproduced over and over, would there be a lot of disciples made? Let's just say the whole church was one person in this church if that, church, if that person didn't make disciples, then it would hit a dead end. And so the whole idea is you teach who you are. If it's something that's important to you and people can see that in your life, that's the type of person that you're going to reproduce. And that's what we need to be doing. So your life is very much involved in all of this. 
here's sort of the vision that the book would give. And it gives in a very concise way um, and gives a lot of practical examples. But I'm just trying to give you some excerpts to cause you to think. So as you think about this whole idea of making disciples, first, identify people who need the gospel. Could you do that tonight as you look at your life? Could you identify some people around you that you need to work with? After you identify them, then you invest in others as you share the gospel. So now you have people identified, you pray about it, and then you invest time, resources, in order to reach them. They gave numbers of illustrations in the book, and certainly people here could give a lot of illustrations, but you invest in people as you endeavor to reach out. Then you invite people into disciple-making relationships. And... Uh, I was just visiting with my daughter right before I came here, and um, she has a group of friends that we're not sure there's any believers in this group. And so we are going to pray that God would create in somebody within that group a desire to know God. So we're praying for God invasions. But she's already identified a group of people she wants God to work in. Do you have a group like that? And are you ready to invest as the doors open? Then you invite people into disciple-making relationships and you want to do that as well as God opens up the door and increase disciple-making by sending people to make more disciples. That's sort of the outline in his plan that he worked in a number of neighborhoods. Here's a statement that just caught my attention. By nature, we are all self-absorbed. Would you agree with that? Isn't it true that we love to talk about ourselves? And uh, oftentimes, that's who we are. I just, I put this statement in, this isn't from the book, but I thought the opposite, be intentionally inquisitive about others. What do I mean? As you're around people, I hope you're interested in them. I hope you're interested in enough in them that you ask them questions. Do you do that? Is that natural for you? If you work with someone new or if you, like I meet people on the street and I go out and uh, my, I'm just, you know, if you went with me, you would say, all he does is ask questions and that's all I do. I just ask questions of people. Well, where'd you come from? Oh, I came over from Eastern Iowa. You did? Is that where you were raised? Yeah, what community was that? Oh, that's interesting. Because I am interested in people. And then I'll ask them if they had brothers and sisters, a big family, a small family. I'll ask them what they do for work. How did they ever get involved in that job? Did they enjoy it? Did they always? All sorts of questions. To me, that's the opposite of being self-absorbed. You're more interested in finding out about people, asking them questions. And you know, if that's your natural bent, is to ask questions, be inquisitive, I mean genuinely interested in people, in learning things, 
don't you think at some point you could venture into the spiritual world in your inquisitiveness and not be offensive? They would just say, this guy wants to know all about, and you can if you're interested in other people. So be interested in other people. Be inquisitive. Ask questions, not in a place where you annoy them. I'm not trying to say that because you can oh, man, good night, you know, but when there's time, when they're rushed, don't be asking them questions when they're running out the door. They have to go here or there. I mean, use some common sense here. But if you can sit down and eat lunch with someone, I hope the conversation sort of aims at them instead of you. That's what I'm talking about. Because if people sense that, that you're interested in them. And I, you know, just recently I had uh, somebody I knew um, call me and ask and say, you know, I, Chuck, I, I know you'd be a person of prayer, but I have breast cancer. So immediately what I wanted to do is I wanted to sit down and talk with them. And what did I want to do? Preach at them? No, I wanted to ask them all sorts of questions on how it happened, how they knew about it. And so for a whole hour I sat down with the individual because I love this individual and I long for them to come to know the answers about eternal life but I never got there yet I asked questions for a whole hour and she just explained everything that went down and then I said maybe after you're done with these treatments maybe we could get together and go over the studies that I've wanted to do with you for so long. And she said, I would love that. Hasn't happened yet. Um, there's another individual that I've met in this church. In fact, I met him, Newcomer's Visitation, and I was just sharing with somebody else. Um, I've known him for over a year and a half, probably closer to two years. Finally, this last week, I got through the first half of the first lesson, I wonder, it would be interesting to me if we could flash up on the screen how many questions I've asked this person over our span of almost two years. I'm sure it would be literally in the hundreds trying to learn about this individual and his likes and his dislikes. But be interested in people. Don't be self-absorbed. Focus on people. Enjoy doing that. So anyway, that is just a word to the wise, and I pray that that would be part of your life, and you would enjoy it. If you do that, evangelism actually becomes a joy. It's just learning about people and finally be able to get into the area of spiritual things, and then you can talk to them. That can lead to discipleship. That's what it's all about loving people, being interested in people. Now let me just quickly, um, oh, the short answer is to start where you already are. Go where you already go, just go with new eyes. And maybe if you don't have a burden for people, you can pray for that, and God will give you new eyes 
with the people you're already running into. Inviting people into discipling relationships will look different in different contexts. And believe me, nobody can copy anybody else. You're your own person. It's going to look different from your perspective. You're going to be in different environments. It varies all the time. So be who God wants you to be in the world that he's placed you. He can use you there. In fact, if he doesn't use you there, who's he going to use? You might be a person that touches certain areas of life that nobody else touches. And I pray that God will use you there as you walk through. Now, the first biblical example is Philemon. So I quickly want to give you a little bit of a background. I've actually had these slides one time before when we were studying about the church of Colossae. Do you see Colossae where it is all the way off to that side over there? But you're looking at that. And Ephesus is all the way on the other side. You're about 100 miles apart. And um, Paul never went to Colossae, but he was in Ephesus for two years. And while he was in Ephesus, some people from Colossae made it over to Ephesus. And uh, the population, just to give you an idea, Ephesus was about 50,000, and there's the mileage between the cities. There's the three cities, Heropolis, Laodicea, Colossae. Paul actually reached all of these cities through his influence, although he was never at any of these cities. It took place in Acts it says about Paul, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And it goes on to say, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that was the map you just saw, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now this is what the school of Tyrannus looked like. That's where Paul was for two years. And as he was there, the gospel grew. We know that. In fact, the one that really went there, traveled that hundred miles, was Epaphras. Or Epaphras, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our dearly beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He brought the word to Colossae. So he traveled to Ephesus, came back to Colossae. He, at that point, I'm sure was just a layman who was interested. Now, he's not one of our examples because I have a feeling he may have become the pastor of this church. But Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. I don't have time to talk much about prayer tonight. That's such a crucial part here. Because this man was a prayer warrior, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he, was, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, all three of the cities that we looked at. He was the initial contact. But notice this one as we consider it. If you have your Bibles, you might go to the book of Philemon. I'm going to read a few verses out of that book. But he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it 
to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self, which indicates that Paul won this man to the Lord, Philemon. Did he travel it with Epaphras? I think he must have. And then he came back to Colossae. Here's the first biblical example we want to look at is Philemon. Now notice about him, Paul writes, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dearly or our beloved fellow worker and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier and church in your house. Now he wrote this letter to Philemon because he's going to appeal because of a, a slave, Onesimus, who ran away and found Paul in Rome. So he's writing this letter to appeal to Philemon that Onesimus might minister with him in Rome. And it's a very, very interesting letter. And you learn all about Paul and, and much of his desires. But when you look at this letter, it's interesting because you learn a lot about Philemon here, this layman that received this letter. This is his house. We got his address, and so he took a picture of his... This probably isn't his house, but he probably had an adequate house because he entertained the church in his house. So he had a house something like this, and, uh, and the house met in his church. Several things to observe about Philemon, the layman. Number one... He was considered a dear friend and a co-laborer with Paul. The word co-labor means equal worker with Paul. So notice Paul's mindset. This Philemon, who was a nobody to the church at large, to Paul, he was a very important part of the ministry. And he's writing a letter to him, and he counts him as a dear friend, and he counts him as his co-worker working with him. Kim, number two, his house was used as a meeting place. You just sense the attitude of this man, and he must have said, my house is your house. Mi casa es su casa, you know. My house is your house. Do you see how he looked at his possessions? It wasn't like he was trying to build a great future plan for himself. He didn't even think of that. He's sold out to the program of God. Everything that he has belongs to God. I am so encouraged by people in this church and elsewhere who have this mentality. We were just down in Ecuador just a little bit ago. There's a couple down there that went down there without knowing any Spanish. And he he taught through an interpreter, started a church which has been instrumental in starting two other churches, and now he runs an orphanage with 13 boys in his home. One thing is obvious to me. This guy is sacrificing everything he has for the ministry of God. He doesn't care. And I don't even know if he's the greatest preacher. I, don't think, I think I listened to him preach once because he asked me to preach when I go down there. But I watched this guy, and, and I just say, his genuineness and his desire to give everything he has to the Lord impresses me. I think that's what we have in Philemon. So whatever you have, he's ready to use. The other thing that's interesting to me here is Philemon. It says, Aphia, 
our sister, I believe it's really his wife and his son who works along with him in the ministry. So again, he gathers his family around the very same cause. What an encouragement he was to Paul, this Philemon. He had a deep love for our Lord and the saints. It says that in verse 5. It says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and your faith towards the Lord and for all the saints. What motivated this man? His deep love for our Lord and for the saints. Does that resonate with you? Because that's what this guy is all about. Then it says as well, verse 7, he refreshed the heart of the saints. For I have a great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. You know, only a refreshed heart can refresh other saints. This guy was refreshing saints as they came into his house every week. Is that sort of the attitude you come to church with? I can't wait to get, I want to refresh people around me. That's really what the scriptures are all about. But you can see when this takes place, it's going to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Because as you look at number six, it says the gospel grew in Colossae. In fact, here's what, because the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This man was a very, very important part of the church at Colossae. Although it was a small church, this man was having an impact. Wouldn't it be refreshing if all of us, and you know, I can say, I know that's happening with some of you because you have refreshed my heart. And I love that. I come to church not only to try to refresh people, I get refreshed, and I do. And I thank God for that. But that spirit needs to grow if the kingdom of God is going to grow here at Sailorville. That spirit must grow Here's a layman having a great impact for God. And Paul counted him as a co-worker with him. Isn't that a privilege? What more could you live for than that? If you can make an impact for God here and, and work that way, that's what God is looking for here. But it's laymen that really caused this to take place. So I pray that as you look and consider there was a letter written to a layman by the name of Philemon. Let me ask you this. If Paul wrote you a letter tonight, what would it say? That's how these letters, I wonder what it would look like. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to get a letter like this? We can if we labor. This is a layman that God is using in a very rich way. There's another one, if you would go to 3 John. This guy encourages my heart as well. 3 John, if you have it with you, I'm going to just read some verses. I didn't put all of these verses up, but 3 John is a letter written to Gaius. 
Now notice, it starts out this way in verse 1. The elder, which is the Apostle John now. The Apostle John is writing to this guy. To my dear friend Gaius, I love you in the truth. That's a powerful introduction to me, and and I love reading the words as as they're there. But here's one thing. As, As you look at this, this is so interesting to me when I read this letter because the word love is so key in John's writings. But notice the impact of the deep love within this letter. One, if, if you were to read John 15, 9, it says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. As I have loved others, you should love one another. Now notice here, the Father loves Jesus. And that's what drove our Lord, was the great love that the Father had for him. Then Jesus loved John. That drove John because Jesus really loved in such a deep way. And John felt that love as a disciple. In the same way that Jesus loved him, John loved Gaius. That's why he starts out and he says, my dear friend Gaius, I love you in the truth. And you just see the love of God traveling through from the Father to the Son to John and now to Gaius. As you read this letter, he's going to minister to traveling evangelists. He loves them. It's a great chain of love that we don't want to break. And the other thing here is your love for others shouldn't necessarily be driven horizontally. It actually should come from someone else to you and then you reach out. Why do I always want to reach people? A lot of ways, but part of it goes back to a very human aspect. I couldn't believe that Doug would reach out to me the way that he did. And I would never and will never forget that. The way he loved me, then I want to pursue and love others the way he loved me and reach out to others. And I hope that type of love, whoever reached you, I pray that that would drive you to do that to others because that's what's driving this layman called Gaius, who again is a layman. Now, several other things here. Gaius overcome possible health problems and strong persecution. Let me just read this. Dear friend, I pray that you may prosper in every way and be in good health physically just as you are spiritually. He probably have poor health. And sometimes we have so many reasons why we don't want to get involved in God's program. We're facing difficulties and friction and trials. Therefore, we can't. Ah, Gaius was facing that. Not only that, but verse 10 says, this is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he's doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he's not satisfied with that. This is Diotrephes, an enemy of the work of God. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Whoa. This guy's under a lot of pressure. Does it stop? his ministry to others. It doesn't. It doesn't. And even if we're going through difficulties, in fact, sometimes when we're in the midst of difficulties, God can give us a very powerful ministry to others. That's what's going on with Gaius. As you look at this layman in this small church where he may have been expelled, and yet there he is. He didn't stop serving God. 
He went forward with it with a great deal of love as you, as you look at this whole letter. Many brothers noted his work of love. Verses 3 and 6, it says, it says this. The one who reads this, I'm sorry, that's, Dear friends, although I was eager to write about the salvation, that's the wrong one too, I turned the page. Hold on, here we go. For I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you are walking in truth. And then verse 6, it says this. They have testified to your love in front of the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. People were showing up at John's door saying, you won't believe what Gaius is doing for us. We end up at his house, and I think he did use his house. He probably used his home. He entertained people he never met before. He had them come in, stay with him. He loaded them up, and as they left, they were so refreshed and encouraged. That's Gaius. He's a layman, and John writes him a letter just to talk about how he's impacting the whole church as he uses his home. He used his resources to encourage the brethren. We read some of those verses, but he sends them on their way. And so that since they were set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans, they didn't have to get anything from the pagans. John or Gaius supplied all of that. Those who helped these evangelists are considered to be co-workers. Verse 8, therefore we ought to support such men, meaning Gaius, so that we can, I'm sorry, meaning the travel evangelists, so that they can be co-workers with the truth. That's who Gaius was. He was a co-worker with John in the ministry. And his work aided the growth of the gospel. So these people, do, do I think that Philemon and Gaius as well shared the word of God with people beside using their resources? Absolutely. I think Onesimus, as you go through the book of Philemon, heard the gospel in his own home. And I believe when he ended up in Rome... He looked up Paul because he didn't know Paul, but he heard of Paul. There, why, why else would he look him up in Rome, which were hundreds of miles away? Something didn't go right in his life, and he was frustrated. All he knew of is Philemon talked about Paul, talked about the gospel, so then he went to Paul, found him in prison, an open setup where he could have visitors Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus got saved. But do you see the work of Philemon and all of that to prepare the way and the ground as you go through? You see, these laymen were greatly used of God in the ministry. Most of you in the audience, you are not going to be called into the ministry you know, I never knew if I'd be called into ministry at all. I, I guess I wasn't that concerned about it. I just knew that I was supposed to share the gospel. So God could have left me a layperson all my life, and he could have. He gave me opportunities that go beyond that, but I almost look at myself as a layman to a certain degree. There's such a rich ministry for those who aren't necessarily called to full-time ministry. I know sometimes people, oh, I don't know if I'm called to full-time ministry. I almost say, 
Who cares? I mean, let's look at what you can do right now, in your life right now. If God wants to call you into full-time ministry, fine, but that's not the issue here. Let's get busy and do for God what he wants us to do right now. Let's enjoy being part of this great ministry. Let's watch God grow Sailorville by men or by copying some of the examples, certainly of our Lord, but when you look at Philemon and Gaius, what great examples for us, aren't they? May the ministry grow here as we look to see what God will do in the new year. Let's just pray together as we close. Father, I thank you for biblical examples that you place before our eyes. Father, you know every heart here, whether we're sort of living for ourselves and, or whether we're really living a life of abandonment. I pray that all of us would live that life. I thank you for cell group leaders who in some ways, in many ways, are small pastors as they try to encourage their group. And I pray for everyone here, Father, that you would understand we are called to the ministry, that we are ambassadors, that we are co-laborers with God. Thank you for that great privilege. And I'm so glad you included us Oh, it's frustrating at times. In other times, we wonder, is our labor worth it? But we know it is because your word said that all the labor is never in vain in the Lord. Thank you for the ones that serve here. May you encourage their hearts. May you strengthen them in the ministry. May you open many doors for them. And Father, if we're not serving the way you want us to, then help us to get involved. Help us to step into the privilege that can be ours. And may you use us in a very rich way. And may 2018 be a far richer year than 2017. May we continue to grow as we work together as co-laborers in the gospel This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.